And I want to welcome you. It has already been done by a lot of people, hopefully, this morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And I'm delighted that you're here on whichever floor you happen to be on, here on the second floor, perhaps on the third floor, or on the first floor. Maybe you're watching remotely at home or someplace else. We're glad that you're here. Every now and then, we get to do something uh, a little bit unique and different, and I don't want to say off script, but just a little something that is not typical for us. I think we can all pretty much agree, regardless of where you happen to stand on this issue or that issue, that the last 18 months or so have been pretty rough on just about everybody. Like, there's not a whole lot of necessary debate on that. It's been a rough go for the last 18 months or so. I remember uh, a couple years ago uh, not being able to meet for Easter for the very first time. And then since then, it's just been a, a slog and a drag trying to figure out how to do church, how to do life, how to do community. And as rough as it's been on a lot of us, we also have a great number of people in the medical field that have absolutely just been pummeled for a solid 18 months. Many of them are uh, traumatized or just exhausted. They're ragged. And so we thought, as a church, one of the things we can do for our community, but also more specifically our campus community, is encourage and love and support these folks. We have a lot of people. We're so blessed and fortunate to have a lot of folks from the medical community that are here at this church. And we've just had a number of conversations that they're just exhausted. They're discouraged. They're worn out. They're ragged. And they're beginning to feel some frazzledness. That's not really a word, but they're still feeling it anyway. And so what we would like to do is next Sunday after church, that's the uh, 10th of October, on this very floor, on the second floor, we're going to bring up our foundry donuts and we're going to hang out here in this floor and just have a time of conversation to hear from them, to see what's going on in their world so that we can then hear that, enter into it with them and intercede for them and for our community and for the entire medical uh, world that's going on here in East Texas. So you're going to forget about that. And that's okay. There's grace for that too. But we're going to remind you so that next Sunday, right after church, on the 10th of October, on this very floor, there will be artisanal donuts and discussion about what's going on in our medical field and the folks that we love and support. And we want their best. And we know that God wants their best. And the way that we assist with that and get involved with that is by praying with them for them and hearing their story. So please plan on hanging out a little bit longer next Sunday. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right into our sermon series for this fall semester. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the opportunity we have had to gather together in worship, to respond to what you have revealed about yourself in your word by your spirit to us, your people of your promise. So we pray, God, that you would illumine your word, ready our hearts to hear from you, that we would be changed because you are worth it. So we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in a sermon series in the book of Genesis. Why in the world are we in a sermon series in the book of Genesis? I mean, come on, for realsies, that's 4,000-year-old stuff. And we're talking about Abraham. How could that possibly impact you and me and our daily lives in the 21st century? Amazingly, nothing could be more relevant nor salient. What goes on with Abraham and his household 4,000 years ago is right in the middle of our lives here today. We've been looking at the life of Abraham for these last four weeks, but really we've been using Abraham just to sort of as the delivery mechanism so that we can steer more intently and more accurately at our God. 
Some 430 years after Abraham, Moses leads the children of Israel up out of Egypt. And he's trying to instruct them what this God is all about, what he's like, what he has done, what he wants for them. And he hasn't have to try to defend and prove the existence of God. He just says, you know, God, the, right there, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke and the cloud. Him, this is what he's like. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is astonishing that God identifies himself with three finite mortal people who were all pretty lousy at life, candidly. But God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we've been looking at the faithfulness of God through this whole series thus far. And our big idea now for the fourth week in a row is that God is faithful. You may be saying, wait a minute, that's kind of cheating. We, we, we want another big idea. No, you don't. That's the jam. That's the thing. God is faithful. And it's not just what he's like. It's actually what it is it is one of his attributes, the faithfulness of God. He cannot deny himself, Paul tells Timothy. Now, we've been looking at the life of Abraham and sort of his call. God comes to him, leads him out of Ur the Chaldees when he's 75. His wife is about 66. God gives him a promise, and then God makes covenant with him. And then God gives him an oath. And Abraham is instructed to seal the deal, we might say, with the sign of circumcision. We finished that up last Sunday in Genesis chapter 17. And Abraham faithfully obeys and is himself circumcised at the ripe old age of 99 and circumcises his entire household. And then some time passes. We don't know exactly how much time, but in that oath that God makes to Abraham in chapter 17, he is told, you and Sarah, your wife, will have a son from your bodies. It's coming from you. Some time passes, presumably however much time is required to heal from a circumcision administered by a 99-year-old man. I don't know how long that is. Enough time passes. And we find Genesis chapter 18, these strange little narratives of Genesis 18 and 19. Now, I'm going to just walk through these narratively, sort of the way that Moses would have told the Israelites. I'm just going to walk through it because it's a story. And sometimes these narratives, if we dig way down deep and nuance every single comma and semicolon, we lose the forest for the trees. So for these two chapters, I'm just going to tell you the story. I invite you, I encourage you, I exhort you to read these passages for yourself because I'm not going to cover every detail. I just want you to get the macro picture. In Genesis 18, we have this wonderful picture of Old Testament hospitality a virtue of the ancient Near East, and a biblical value. We are commanded in Hebrews to show hospitality. In the book of 1 Peter, to show hospitality, to treat people you might not otherwise like, like you like them. And we're told that Abram, or Abraham by this point, is sitting in his tent in the heat of the day. He has been up in the north, sort of near Hebron, between Bethel and Ai, but now he's moved to the oaks of Mamre. Mamre is a guy, it's a, an Amorite, that is an ally of Abraham. He's sort of fitting in with his surroundings, which is a little bit troublesome, but he's by these oaks of Mamre, and he's sitting in his tent in the very heat of the day, just about to nod off, when it, the text says that, behold, there's three guys just standing in front of him. And that doesn't happen just every day. And Abraham jumps up super quick to serve. And he says, oh, my lords, please, would you stay here? Don't pass by. Let me bring you just a little water and a morsel of bread. He under promises and over delivers a key for hospitality and he runs inside and he tells his wife to get all the finest flour to make cakes he goes off to his herd and he gets the finest calf and he has it prepared he gets water and he washes their feet and he himself personally waits on them and they accept and they sit and in silence they dine and this 99 year old man personally waits on them because he understands these are not three normal visitors 
One of them is God himself somehow in human form. We would say this is a pre-incarnate Christ. The second member of the Godhead Trinity somehow takes human form and is flanked by two angelic beings from the royal court of the throne room of God himself. And Abraham understands this, and so he does not skimp. When finally the silence is broken, and the one in the middle apparently says, where is Sarah? That's a tip-off that these guys are special. They know his wife's name. And he says, well, she's in the tent. Now, what we don't know at this point is that Sarah is just over here, and she's peeking out the door, listening to the whole deal. He says, I'll tell you something, Abraham. This time next year, I will return, and she will have borne a son. Now, what's going on in the text, it's very, very subtle, but apparently Abraham has not bothered to tell Sarah yet what God has already promised him. Because she snickers. She's like, and she says something pretty uh, NC-17, candidly. At 90 years old, am I going to? And then she elaborates, and she chuckles in her heart. And you, the reader, folks, are like, oh, gasping, swoon. I feel the vapors. That, you can't say that in the Bible. She does. And she chuckles. And God says, why did you chuckle in your heart? She goes, oh, no, 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 I, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. I'll see you in a year, and you're going to have a baby. And she's like, well, that's going to be a weird afternoon. Okay. And so the three men get up, and they start moving off. And this time, God doesn't just speak to Ab Abram like he did in Ur. He doesn't just come to him and cut covenant. This time, oh, there is proximity. Abraham walks with God. Now, you're supposed to imagine that because you probably never have. Abraham gets up out of his tent, and the three men begin to move away. And Abraham, in silence, is just walking <laughs> with God. Now, I know that he's in human form, but it's pretty evident that he's walking with God. And they approach the plains, and they can see in the distance the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And two of the men, the angels, they take off and keep walking. But God, pre-incarnate Christ, stands put, and he turns to Abraham. He says, shall I not share with you what I'm about to do? You know how this conversation goes. You've had this conversation with your best friend. You go, hey, I'm going to tell you something. No, I probably can't tell you. Which means, I'm going to tell you anyway, but now I just want to see if I can really trust you. Like, of course, and Abraham's going, no, no, you started, you got to finish. You started, you got to finish. And so God says, well, I I'll guess I'll tell Abraham, because I intend to make him a great nation, and I will bless him, and he will be a blessing to all these peoples. Now, that's important. God says, I'm going to judge that place. And the text is very clear. It calls him Lord, all caps, Yahweh in human form somehow. I'm going to judge that place because I have heard the outcry from the surrounding region, these Canaanite pagans were vile and foul. But Abraham says, wait, wait, wait. I happen to remember that I defended those people and rescued them back in chapter 14 when they got defeated by the four kings that whipped the five kings. And Lot lives there, my nephew. And he's a little bit of a knuckle-dragger, that Lot, but he lives there, him and his family. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the text says something very interesting. Abraham is invited to approach the Lord. It's a legal, technical term. He draws near. He approaches like an advocate approaches the bench of the judge. And he says, listen, let me be really, really bold here, but would you preserve the city if there was just 50 righteous people there? Now, if you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, not going to happen. God says, yes, I'll spare. Well, how about for 45? Yes, I'll spare. Listen, I don't mean to be out of line here. Forgive me for speaking as he's standing next to God, the creator of the cosmos. I don't mean to get a little bit bold here, but how about for 40? Yes, 50, 45, 40. Yes. Well, how, okay, okay. Uh, how, how about for 30? Would you preserve for 30? 
Yes, I would preserve for 30. Okay, okay, how about for 20? Now, we hear this and we go, what is going on? This is so weird. That's because we're Americans. And we don't understand what's happening here. In our culture and context, for the last couple hundred years, we have focused solely on the individual. We say, you do you. It's all about you. It's just you. That is a notion foreign to the Bible. In the Bible and for most of human history, except for in the West in the last 200 years, the sin and guilt of an individual always affects the group. It always affects the family. It always affects the community. It always affects the corporate whole. And you might not like that, but that's the way God sees things, that the sin and wickedness of an individual always infects and corrupts those around that individual. What Abraham is doing is something fascinating. He's approaching God. He says, I know how it works. The sin of one affects the many. But I'm wondering, is the righteousness of one, can that work in reverse and affect the many? That's never been asked before. Abraham is doing his priestly prophet duties. He's a sense praying. This is the longest prayer we've had in our Bible so far here in Genesis 18. I'm wondering, usually it's the wickedness that corrupts the whole, but can the righteousness of an individual actually work in reverse and bless the whole? And God says, yeah, keep going. Yeah, keep going. How about 50, 45, 40, 30, 20? How about 10? And then he stops. And you and I read that and we get a little bit vexed and we go, why, why didn't he just keep on going? That's because we misunderstand. We have a tendency to think that Lot's one of the good guys and that he's righteous, but he's not. Now, much, much later in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, it'll say that right, Lot was righteous ultimately, but not at this point. He has taken up residence. He's a leader. He is uh, an official in the gates of the city of Sodom. He's a, he's a leader there. Will you save for 10? God says, yes, if I find 10, I will. Clearly, he does not. And we have to wait 2,000 years longer to ask the question, will you say for the righteousness of one? And what we find out is yes. Yes, he will. And he has. But then the two angels, you probably know the story, they go on into Sodom and they approach at night. See, the three men approached Abraham in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. The two angels approached the city of Sodom at night and Lot is sitting in the city gate. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been there at night, but he's an influencer. He sees these men and he bows to the ground and he says, welcome, fellas. Uh, what's your business? You're not going to like it here. <laughs> and they said, well, we're going to go spend the night in the city square. That was custom to just go sleep in the center of the city because there would be protection among the many uh, residents of a particular city. And Lot says, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Things get pretty dicey here after dark. Why don't you come and stay at our house? They said, no, we're going to go to the square. No, really, you need to come to our house. And so they agree. They follow Lot to his house. As soon as they get there, there's a pounding at the door. And the text says that every single male, old, young, not a single one, didn't come. They all showed up at the house. And they start banging on the door saying, Lot, bring those two guys out so that we can, you know, know them. Is the Hebrew verb there, yada, to know them. It's a very foul intent, and they're violent, and they're aggressive. Lot pleads with them, please don't do this wicked thing, and he calls them my brothers. That's a bad deal. Listen, don't do this heinous, awful thing that you're proposing. I've got two maiden daughters. Take them. Not great moments in fatherhood right there. At some point, the door opens. The two angelic beings grab him, bring him inside, and they strike the mob with blindness and sort of a dazed and confused issue going on there. They say, we're going to destroy this place. This is foul. you got to get up and go. And Lot and his wife and his daughters go, no, 
We want to stay. We like it here. The angels are like, did you not hear us? We're going to destroy the place. You've got to go. And so it says the angels literally grab them and drag them out. They didn't want to leave. And so as they're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, the angel says, we got to go. we got to go. We're about to rain down destruction. And Lot says, oh, but I don't want to go. Can you just put, let me go to that little bitty city over there called Zoar, which means little town. Can I just go over there? And the angel's like, this guy, are you kidding me? I'm about to like literally rain down fire and brimstone and he's negotiating? Okay, fine. And so he lets him go to Zoar. Do not turn back. The destruction is raining down now. The text says that Mrs. Lot, we don't even get her name, she turns back, and just matter-of-factly, she's turned to a pillar of salt. I have no idea what that means. Some think it's a euphemism that she stared intently and waited and got cooked into a pile of ash, possibly. Or maybe she's literally salt, and you can walk up now and like a deer lick, and you can, I, I have no idea. But it didn't go well for her. She's dead. Lot and his daughters go off into the little city of Zoar, but very soon they leave the city of Zoar and they go to a cave and they see all the destruction from all around them. And the daughters go, Well, this is it. We're all good. We're the last people on earth. I've got an idea, says the firstborn daughter. We're the last three in existence. We don't want the line of humanity to die out. Where's that Manischewitz? And they give their dad a bunch of wine, get him liquored up, and they seduce him one at a time. It's the most ribald, disgusting, lewd, foul, horrific scene you can imagine. And each daughter conceives with her father. The first one is named Ammon, becomes the enemies of the Israelites for thousands of years. The other one is Ben-Ami, becomes the, uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites. That's a strange deal. And the whole while, Moses tells us that Abraham is observing all of this from a distance. The advocate has interceded, and yet there was none righteous, and so judgment fell. Surely now, Abraham, having observed all of this from a distance, is going to be that great man of faith. Chapter 20. If you got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 20 and catch up. Genesis chapter 20 reads like this. From there, this is up in the north between Bethel and Ai, from there... Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. What? Why? Why Why would he do that? That's going way down south into the Negev desert wilderness of the southern part of the country. And lived between Kadesh and Shur. Oh, that's the road to Egypt. Surely he's not going to like go all the way back. No, he wouldn't do that. It's right on the border and the boundary of Philistine country. So he's right on the edge of where he really should not be. And he sojourned in Gerar, this little area in the wilderness down there on the way to Egypt. And Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. <laughs> no, he didn't. If you're an Israelite, you should shriek at this. If you're hearing Moses tell you this story 430 years later, we're the people of the promise. You're telling me Abraham gave Sarah again a second time? Yes, he did. He tells this person in chapter 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, who, by the way, is 90 at this time. It's not every day you staff your harem with a 90-year-old lady. Apparently, Sarah was fine. I'm not sure how, but she's 90. And Abimelech's like, yeah, I need that. And he brings her into his household. And Abram's like, whew, at least I'm safe. I mean, this is the great man of faith, right? And apparently, this is his practice. We find out that in chapter 26, his son Isaac does the exact same thing. The sins of the father have a tendency to manifest generationally. Reminds us of David who sinned sexually, and then his own son does a dastardly deed as well. 
Well, we hear in chapter 2, or chapter 20, verse 2, Abram said of Sarah's wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, which is probably not his actual name, that's more like a title, Abimelech means my father is God, my father is king. That's an interesting little twist there. You would think the man of faithfulness, Abraham, but this guy, his name is my father is king, my father is God. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. See, God is faithful. He's going to engage and protect his promise because if he makes a promise, he has to make good on it because to fail to make good on his promise would un-God God, and he cannot do that. Now, remember, Abram's already been told twice in chapter 17 and again in chapter 18, your wife's going to have a baby from you in less than a year. And at least in chapter 18, Sarah is now aware of the deal. But that's okay. We're just going to have her go into another man's home and be his concubine. Like, can you imagine that that would have corrupted the promise that God says, no, you're going to have a baby from you and her together. But now it's all on the line from a risk standpoint. And so God wastes no time. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Now, when that happens, when God comes to you and says, behold, you're a dead man, it's probably time to pay attention. And that's probably not going to go well for you. Behold, you are a dead man because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, technical term. He had not gone into her yet. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Ah, you see the interplay here, the reverse. He, this pagan, unrighteous, not God-fearer. Now he says, will you kill all of these people? We're innocent. We didn't do anything. We didn't even know about this. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? They both lied to me. I'm innocent in this deal. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream. It's amazing. Yahweh is speaking to Abimelech, this Canaanite, this pagan. He said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning. But God never apologizes. Like, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I know you're good. No. Abimelech is innocent of that offense, but he is not righteous. He is still under condemnation, and that's important. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. How did he prevent that? Well, we don't know exactly, but apparently some horrible affliction comes over all the females of his tribe, and that was apparently a bad day for Abimelech. And so he's never really uh, an opportunity to go into this new addition to his harem. Verse 7, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. One who speaks to God, Navi. It's the first time this word's been used in our Bible thus far. This man, Abraham, is a prophet. He is supposed to intercede. He is supposed to speak to me on your behalf so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. See, the sin of the one affects and corrupts the many. But I've sent someone who's going to intercede and cover you. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Yeah, I suppose so. Then verse 9, Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? This is a stinging rebuke. I thought you were supposed to be a prophet of your God, but why have you deceived us? Why have you duped us? Why have you done this horrible thing to us? What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. That's interesting. 
Abram, we see in chapter 18, the man of hospitality. But here, he's anything but hospitable. He's ruining. He's supposed to be a blessing to all peoples. And yet again, just like in Egypt in chapter 12, he is a curse to all of these people. Remember, Moses is writing this to the Israelites. He wants them to know God's plan is for you, the people of the promise, to be a blessing and not a curse. How'd they do? They were pretty much a curse everywhere they went as well. Verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? What is it? What did you actually perceive? What do you assume is going on here that you did this horrible thing to us? Abraham said, and you kind of can't believe he says this. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. He had seen all the wickedness of Sodom. He just assumed that the same thing was going on here. But God had not confided that in Abraham about Gerar and Abimelech. God confided that about Sodom. Abraham just assumed. I thought there was no fear of God here, to which Abimelech's going, no fear of God? How about you? You apparently don't have any fear of God. Why would you do this horrible thing to me? Your God came to me in a dream and said that you have done this thing to me. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my mother, though not the daughter of my mother. (sighs) The daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Abraham blame shifts. Oh, she kind of still technically is my sister. She's a sister from another mother. And Abimelech goes, that's embarrassing. That doesn't even rhyme. That's terrible. A sister from another mother. Nobody says that. What are you doing? Come on. And when, in in verse 13, literally, and when the gods, plural. Abraham is hedging his bets here. And when the gods caused me to wander from my father's house. It's not my fault. It's God's fault or the gods' fault. I didn't, hey, listen. I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, save me. He is my brother. This is how you can show me that you love me. Go into another man's harem. I mean, who says that? If you raise your hand, you're, you're out. That's not okay. You don't say that of your wife. This is how he says, you can show me that you love me and that you're kind by doing this so that I'll be safe. And I'm sure you'll be <clears throat> okay too. This is terrible. And apparently she goes along with it. Because they were relying on their old plans for when push comes to shove. You ever been there? I have. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Yet again, just like in chapter 12 in Egypt, this error produces in the power of God somehow blessing. And Abimelech said, verse 15, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother. Abimelech still going, Hey, dude, I didn't know. You said he was your brother. I'm going to call him your brother. I'm innocent in this deal. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence. And then this translation, in the eyes of all. No, 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 no. It's a technical translation. I have given a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence. The eyes of all have been covered. It's a legal term. I have covered the eyes of all who have seen this. I have covered it over. I have made atonement, literally. And it was costly. And it's Abimelech that has to say this. I have covered the eyes so that no one can see what has been done. But it's very, very costly to me. That's interesting. In the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. Oh, now Abraham's back in his prophet duties, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord, that's Yahweh, had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, 
Abraham's wife. Abraham and Sarah are the products and the people of a promise. And God will do whatever it takes to make sure that his promise is fulfilled. Because that's the kind of God that he is. Because God is faithful. Why should you care? It's been 4,000 years. Because you and I, in this day and age, are the people of the promise. Even in this place, how then shall we live? Let me give you three very quick implications on this. The first one, I hope you've already picked up on it. It goes like this. Sin splatters. It's never just about you, ever. Sin always splatters. The, the principle from antiquity still holds true today. It still holds sway. The wickedness and iniquity of a sin of an individual always impacts somebody else. Always. There is no victimless crime. Sin always takes us out of fellowship with God and out of fellowship with one another and out of usefulness in mission and ministry. Paul says in Romans, sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. And so when we rely on old plans, on old mechanisms of assumed security, we're always affecting everybody else around us, and we all do it. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, sin makes the watchman abandon his post. You've been placed at a post for a purpose, and when we actively engage in sin or simply allow the apathy of everyday life to overtake us, We've abandoned our post. It matters because of somebody else. I know the world says, you do you. It doesn't matter. No, 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 no. It matters. Your error or faithlessness is always impacting and influencing somebody else negatively. The people in Egypt had been cursed because of Abram's deception. And now the people of Gerar, Abimelech's clan, were similarly cursed. It always splatters. It's not a message where I'm wagging my finger in your face and screaming, stop sinning. No, no, it's not that. Not a sin management sermon. This is a cautionary tale to remind us that sin's a really big deal. We never wink at sin. We never negotiate with unrighteousness. Somebody always pays for the sin in our lives. Always. Second point. Not any more encouraging, I will concede. It goes like this. There's still plenty of time to wreck your life. I don't know how old you are. There's still plenty of time for you to ruin your marriage. You take your hands off the wheel at all, you drive it right off the road. Abraham was 99, and Sarah was about 89, and they still almost ruined everything. There's no age at which we arrive when sin's no longer a landmine. I've said this before, and it bears repeating. Your greatest sin may still be ahead of you, but it doesn't have to be. This is why this passage is so important for us. Abram was already declared righteous in chapter 15. God credited it to him as righteous. And then he continues to fall and fumble and stumble. And so do we. We just sang it this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Apathy is our enemy. Arrogance is our enemy. And there are still plenty of years left for all of us to make a huge mess. We've been declared righteous, but we're always going to struggle with sin in this life. But God will accomplish his promise of blessing. We decide in advance to trust him. So what does it look like to decide in advance? Third point goes like this, very simply. Check your map. Check your map. I say this all the time. If you leave Tyler, Texas and head west, you will never, ever get to Florida. No matter how bad you want to go to Florida. I mean, Disney's 50 this year. You might really want to go to Florida. But if you're going west, you're never going to get there. Sorry. 
Even if you know that you should be going to Florida, if you're heading west, you will never get there. Most of us, now let me just go and say, all of us have an outdated map that still says something like, when push comes to shove, rely on your own creativity, rely on your own cleverness, rely on your own faculties, your finances, your family, or your friends. All of us do. This book is reminding us, this tale of Abraham is reminding us, no, God is faithful. Our own strength accomplishes nothing but sin, and that sin splatters. All of us have a secret or not-so-secret idea of how we're going to cope with life when push comes to shove. But as C.H. Spurgeon so wonderfully said, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. I've got this plan, and oh, I'm sure God's just going to wink and nudge at it. No, he cannot. God is faithful. He never allows his children to sin successfully. Moses is writing to the nation of Israel a prescription for not falling into that wreckage. They were to hear this and decide in advance to trust their God. You know, the God who's right there, the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. Trust him. He's good. And you're not so much. You're not the righteous one in the story. So how does this land for us? How do we actually take this in and believe it and walk out of here trusting in it? Well, it's all about Jesus, of course. He is the long-awaited one, the Messiah. He's the one that walked with Abraham, who approached him in the tent. He's the one that asked him to intercede. But where Abraham fails and falls, our advocate, our prophet, priest, and king never stumbles. It's an amazing story. He says, I will cover the eyes of the judge. That's what atonement means. It means to cover the eyes of God the Father, my Father. I will cover his eyes and I will make atonement, but it's costly. Abraham wasn't willing to risk his neck, but our Messiah is. More than a thousand pieces of silver, he gives his own life. So that, this is the crazy turn, so that you and I can have our Father be King and God. That's right. We are now Avimelech. My father is God. My father is king. Because this prophet, priest, and king has made atonement and covered the eyes of our God. See, this Jesus, he's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our praise. So may we believe. And may he help our fragile and frail unbelief. God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you've revealed of yourself in this word this morning. I thank you for the honesty and the integrity of you've showed us all the fallenness, all the frailty of these fathers who have gone before us, who all point us to you and your faithfulness. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, through this passage, you would lay bare any of our so-called supposed strengths. You've told us in your word that your word is a sharp two-edged sword that cuts away all the crutches that we lean on. So may we, as a result of this passage, receive it as a cautionary tale and lean only on you and never on our own understanding. Father, if there is someone in any of these three floors or watching remotely who does not know you, I pray that you will declare them righteous when they are not. You will change your mind about them, that you will have your eyes covered by the shed blood of Jesus and they will step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that they will be your child. For the rest of us, Father, who have been declared righteous, would you remind us that it's never too late to make a mess? Would you help us to walk by faith and not by the flesh? Father, that you would receive the glory 
We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.